century, the term box, lobby, lounger came into vogue in England, referring to a person who would show up to a play at the theater, but not attend the play. They would hang out in the lobby for the sole purpose of chatting with actual attendees before, after, and during the play's intermission. The idea was that folks who had box seats at the theater were often high-society, well-to-do, influential people. And thus, spending time with them puts you in a position to perhaps shake the right hand, maybe even grease the right palm, and in any case get your face known, so that if you encountered those people again, there was a chance you'd be remembered, which could be useful in future dealings, whether those dealings were of the business, social, or political variety. This term crossed the Atlantic to the U.S. soon after, as did the practice of hanging around theaters and other such venues to attain adjacency to influence and power. And by the 1810s, the term had expanded to include those who hung around the lobbies of political institutions like state houses and congressional campuses, even to the point where some influential non-politicians became known as lobbyist members of the government because they influenced policy and made deals, much like politicians, but from the lobbies of these institutional buildings, rather than from the traditional seats of government power. In the earliest days of lobbying in the United States, much of the activity stayed at the local level, which made sense both because travel and communication was a more ponderous exercise back then, but also because there was more power at the state level in those days. Lobbying was also, notably, still more of a small and independent endeavor, with interest groups and representatives of businesses and industries petitioning their political representatives for certain measures and favors, alongside individuals lobbying their local politicians for particular outcomes, in some cases somewhat formally, but in many cases quite casually, just in normal conversation stating their case and taking their chances, and notably, much of the lobbying at this time was discreet, meaning there were few, if any, public disclosures about such things at that point in history. This practice was formalized into a field at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, in part due to a shift in power toward the federal, countrywide government and in part due to the expansion of national and international trade, the relative speediness of new travel and communication methods, and the organization of industries and demographics into more powerful national interest groups. This was the beginning of what became known as the Gilded Age of American culture and economics, and the rapid growth and wealth generation during this period was partially fueled by the expansion of railroad lines and resultant increase in national and international shipping capabilities. It was also a period of intense competition between the industrialized North and the Reconstruction-era Southern states, which, freshly defeated in the U.S. Civil War, were trying to make sure they held on to as many reins of power as they could grab. Thus, lobbying was professionalized during this period, and that professionalization led to outcries about corruption. 
the right to petition the government, to present one's causes to the government, basically, is enshrined in the Constitution. But professionally well-connected people, wheeling and dealing, glad-handing and, in some cases, outright bribing public officials to make certain calls, pass certain bills, favor certain groups, seemed beyond the pale whenever evidence of it occurring was made public. The first few decades of the 20th century were thus rife with complaints from both the public and politicians, most of whom seemed unhappy with the existing lobbying state of affairs, but none of whom seemed to have any satisfactory way of dealing with it, because it was both legally legitimate and difficult to staunch. In 1953, though, the Supreme Court segmented lobbying activities into two categories, direct lobbying, which involved folks talking to politicians or their representatives directly, and indirect lobbying, which involved changing public opinion as a sort of long-game effort to influence political decisions. The consequences of this court decision have been broad and dramatic across American politics. Yes, it allowed the government to set rules on direct lobbying, including the necessity, in most cases, to document encounters with lobbyists so the public can keep tabs on who is influencing whom, along with rules about who can accept what sorts of gifts, what constitutes a bribe, and so on. The flip side of this decision, though, is that indirect lobbying, the influence of public opinion to achieve the same outcomes, became a lot more important to interest groups who wanted favorable legislation. As a result, professional lobbyists became more expert in manipulating public opinion, in many cases by becoming experts in fundraising. If they could help a candidate earn a bunch of money, in modern times often through special funds called political action committees or PACs, they could collect stockpiles of money, tell politicians that they could have that money if they supported certain causes, and the politician could then use that money to buy advertisements and other sorts of promotion for themselves and their ideas, which in turn then generally promoted the PAC's cause as well, whether that means gun rights, pro-choice legislation, or some other ideology that is deeply entangled with politics here in the United States. Today, a lot more lobbying is also done by individual corporations alongside the interest groups, so it's not just West Coast tech companies acting as a unit in this regard, it's also Google lobbying independently, and Facebook doing the same, alongside individual oil companies and gun companies and organic agricultural interests, all fronting specific and general causes, and all benefiting from this lobbying in various ways. In some cases monetarily, because of how tweaks to the legal system can help their bottom line, and in some cases culturally, because they stand up for a cause that's popular at a particular moment, and often which is important to a group that is vital to their economic well-being. What I'd like to talk about today is the increasing role businesses are playing in not just lobbying, but politics in general and how that role is being questioned and, in some cases, pushed back against. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today 
comes from Quartz, and it's entitled Coinbase Employees Are Quitting Their Newly Apolitical Workplace. In late September of 2020, the CEO of a company called Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, published a blog post which opened with the following, quote, There have been a lot of difficult events in the world this year. A global pandemic, shelter-in-place, social unrest, widespread protests and riots, and West Coast fires. On top of that, we have a contentious U.S. election on the horizon. Everyone is asking the question about how companies should engage in broader societal issues during these difficult times, while keeping their teams united and focused on the mission. Coinbase has had its own challenges here, including employee walkouts. I decided to share publicly how I'm addressing this in case it helps others navigate a path through these challenging times. In short, I want Coinbase to be laser-focused on achieving its mission, because I believe that this is the way that we can have the biggest impact on the world. We will do this by playing as a championship team, focusing on building and being transparent about what our mission is and isn't, end quote. Armstrong went on to outline why the company would be thenceforth mission-focused, what the company's mission actually was, and what that meant in a practical sense. That last component is what ultimately got the most attention. To be mission-focused, according to this blog post, means to focus on the specific work they're doing, and not other things, like politics, personal beliefs, or activism. Coinbase is a digital currency exchange company, meaning they help people buy, sell, and store cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, alongside digital transfers of more typical currencies like USDs and Euros. They've been around since 2012, employ around 1,200 people, and operate in about 30 countries, with partial services available in about 190 countries. Their most recent valuation from 2018 says the company is worth about $8 billion, and it's rumored that they plan to go public with an IPO sometime late 2020 or early 2021, though most of those rumors were from very early in 2020, so those purported plans, if real, then very well might have changed at this point for a variety of reasons. The response to Armstrong's blog post was fairly immediate and broadly fairly negative, though there was a good deal of support from some segments of the business and political world in particular. A follow-up post from Armstrong, published a few weeks after the original post went live, said that the company had offered employees exit packages if they were not keen on the new no-politics, no-activism stance, and that about 5% of their employees had taken them up on those exit packages, not wanting to work for an ostensibly apolitical company. Some of these employees were fairly public with their criticism of the move, disappointed that a company they loved and believed in was playing these sorts of games and pretending that they could be apolitical in this day and age. Others, though, left with less fanfare. Regardless of the specifics, having that many people leave all at once is not a great look, but Armstrong did his best to turn it into a positive saying in that follow-up post that the demographics of the folks leaving was a representative cross-section and was not heavily slanted toward underrepresented groups, as some had feared might be the case when they were deciding whether or not to take this new stance. 
He also posted a short FAQ about the apolitical stance the company would be taking, clarifying that they would be active with politics and activism related to their core focus, cryptocurrency and immediately adjacent fields, but nothing beyond that. Now, it could be argued, and it has been, by many of the analysts, journalists, and commentators that responded to this move, that claiming to be neutral or apolitical is itself a political, non-neutral stance. It's a stance that favors the status quo and thus, arguably, is lowercase c conservative. Said another way, firmly stating that you will not be participating in any kind of change-related conversation means that you are de facto taking the side of things as they are now, enshrining the default and actively not helping those who are currently underrepresented, repressed, and so on. You're not trying to change any of the bad things, and very consciously deciding that you will not. And thus, it's a fairly privileged position that only some people could really afford to take. And this was the sentiment evoked by many of the people who left the company as well. The counter-argument, which has been posited by several prominent venture capitalists and by some of the more free-market-focused journalistic publications, is that the rah-rah activism demonstrated by many companies is mostly empty nonsense to begin with. It's all just branding. And that most companies today are expected by some elements of society to support certain, often more liberal, values, which is harmful to the productive functioning of said businesses, but it also excludes a lot of people with differing political and ideological positions, and punishes businesses that do not align with that particular collection of movements. Beyond being a slanted position, then, it's also a distraction that keeps companies from doing what they're supposed to be doing, as well as they could be doing those things. There is, arguably, a certain logic and some solid arguments behind both of these positions. On one hand, the theory of stakeholder capitalism, basically that companies should serve the interests not just of shareholders who own parts of the company, but all stakeholders, including customers, employees, folks who work at various points along the supply chain, that implies a company with economic, social, and political heft would not be fulfilling its responsibility to all of those people if it stayed out of politics, a field that influences the well-being of its stakeholders as much or more than any other force in modern society. That position and those sorts of outcomes also happen to be the wheelhouse of the Democrats and other liberal factions in the U.S. at the moment, though that hasn't always been the case, and it needn't remain the case. These sorts of values have not always been the domain of the liberal party in the United States. They just happen to be at the moment. But that's why there are outcries that focusing on stakeholders and not just shareholders can sometimes seem like a political stance unto itself, rather than what it arguably actually is, an ideological, economic, and even philosophical stance. On the other hand, and this is something Armstrong brought up in his blog posts, and something that's been argued by outside supporters of what Coinbase is trying to do as well, is that it's difficult to identify the optimal use of a corporation's resources if you believe a corporation needs to be involved in politics and social movements. There will always be someone in a group of stakeholders that big who is unhappy with a decision made by the company, 
in terms of which candidate it supports, which legislation it backs, which ideologies it adheres to, and everything else. Thus, it makes more sense to adopt as neutral a stance as possible to avoid leaving anyone out, but also to avoid becoming so embroiled in external efforts that you're investing all of your time, energy, and resources on things that are beyond the scope of what you are attempting to do, the core products and services that are produced and provided by your business. The counter-argument to that latter point ties back to the earlier point that neutrality, in some cases, is inherently non-neutral. And this is perhaps especially the case if you are a crypto-assets-based company, but is arguably the case for any business in any industry. Society is connected to industry, is connected to the economy and international politics and to every single human being that takes part in any of these larger systems. It's simpler to think about the work we do as being isolated from a war taking place halfway around the world or oppression happening in our own backyard. And it's more convenient in some ways, too, because then we don't need to take those additional, often quite painful variables into account. But it's also not really true if you look at those connections. It's definitely worth debating whether or not every entity, human beings and corporate entities and government entities, need to engage with every single problem, which does seem like it would lead to diminishing returns for everyone at some point. And within that argument's context, it's absolutely possible to further argue that every decision to engage with one problem just leaves a million other problems unaddressed. So picking and choosing will not only reduce the effectiveness of the work you're trying to do, but could also piss even more people off because you chose one cause out of the millions that you could have chosen, and that one that you chose is not theirs. It's basically the same argument you might make for why you don't give every unhoused person you meet on the street money, and why you don't spend all of your time trying to cure malaria. It just doesn't make sense, in most cases, in terms of the resources we have available, very much including time and energy, to address some of these issues in that way, despite the fact that we could potentially make a very small dent in some of them if we did. There are a few additional aspects of this story that are worth bringing up here, I think. First is that back in June of 2020, in the midst of some of the, at that point, largest ever Black Lives Matter-affiliated protests, Armstrong would not tell employees whether the company's messaging on the matter would explicitly say Black Lives Matter, which led to a virtual walkout in support of Black Lives Matter and in protest of the company's refusal to publicly support the movement. This boilover of sentiments came on the heels of a year and a half of tensions related to diversity and equality within the company, and some employees, current and former, have speculated that this virtual walkout and the tumult about the lack of inclusivity among the Coinbase staff might have informed Armstrong's decision about activism and politics. Second is that there is something of a culture clash happening within the tech world at the moment. And this has been perhaps most publicly aired in posts written by the CEO of surveillance tech company Palantir, Alex Karp, who has complained about the, quote, increasing intolerance and monoculture of Silicon Valley, end quote, and has said that he would likely move his company out of California because it's a liberal bubble. The co-founder of Palantir, 
Peter Thiel, a well-known, fairly hardcore conservative libertarian, has often shared similar sentiments, as have venture capitalists like Michael Arrington and Paul Graham. It has not gone unnoticed that many of the most ardent proponents of something approximating political neutrality in the workplace have been wealthy white men. This could be the result of tech as a whole being heavily slanted toward that particular group, the wealth part often coming after some time in the tech world. And there could just be some survivorship bias at play here, but it also indicates to some that this is an at least partially self-serving perspective for those who support it. Basically, the world is their oyster currently, so why would they want to deal with political and ideological movements that could change that favorable status quo? And why wouldn't they want to avoid uncomfortable conversations with people who are being victimized, when, in some cases, it may be their actions that are directly or indirectly doing the victimization? There's also just a good chance that the people making these sorts of statements have never experienced firsthand the things being described by some of these activists, and thus are not particularly inclined to care overmuch about those issues. This is a conversation and debate that's taking place beyond the world of tech, though, as corporate entities become increasingly societally omnipresent and influential and thus are increasingly embroiled in more of the social aspects of their customers' lives. The last point I want to make here ties that idea back to what we talked about in the intro, that corporations can afford expensive and effective lobbyists, and those lobbyists are able to instigate change within politics on a level that other interest groups, much less individuals, would struggle to achieve. That means if a company like Apple decides to support changes to regulations in terms of how we monitor supply chains, for instance, it's far more likely to actually happen than if that cause was left to just outside activist groups because of the resources and influence that Apple can leverage on politicians directly, but also to their customer base, which in turn over time changes public sentiment, increases public awareness, and indirectly changes politicians' minds. If you're running a company that doesn't align with the dominant ideologies of the moment, this reality can be incredibly uncomfortable, and perhaps even threatening, to your continued success and even existence. It could also be argued that a lot of the rah-rah support for various causes by corporations is just cynical branding, and that what they're really aiming for is to acquire the sheen of political correctness and ideological superiority without actually doing much of anything beyond the most superficial branding exercises to earn it. It could further be argued that even superficial support for some causes can be effective in terms of moving the ball down the field politically as it makes the concept of things like gay marriage or using fewer pesticides on our crops or not using sweatshops to produce clothing more common and socially acceptable and thus more politically feasible over time. It makes sense that the business world might move in this direction as tribal affiliations are vital to self-identity for most of us and aligning a business's seeming beliefs with their customer base's actual, or in some cases also superficial, beliefs, they can expand their customer base and reinforce customer loyalty. It also makes sense that some companies would want to avoid getting involved in that game to begin with, 
hoping to avoid scrutiny for anything they might be doing that is out of lockstep with popular opinion or one group or another's beliefs about certain things, and in doing so, not benefiting from this wave of social movements, but also not falling prey to them. That may be the best that they can hope for. That said, I don't know that there's a clean way to achieve neutrality with any business, because everything is so interwoven and entangled, but also because, as I mentioned before, neutrality itself is often a political statement, and generally, not a terribly popular one. It may be that the move pays off for Armstrong and Coinbase in the long term, but right now, in something akin to a political Streisand effect, where telling someone not to look at something draws their attention right to it, it seems like by making this statement about not wanting to get bogged down by politics and activism, he may have sparked precisely what he supposedly hoped to avoid. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Postal Service by Devin Leonard. The USPS has become a strangely political thing this election season in the United States, and I thought it would be interesting to learn a bit more about it, knowing only the most superficial details. And as it turns out, as an entity, it has long been a very politicized organization, and in fact only recently has become something that we thought might work better as a non-politicized institution. And that is what is coming into conflict with the new politicized atmosphere that we're in right now. The history of the Postal Service is interesting, the characters involved are quite bizarre and extreme, and the timeline of how we got to now is also quite informative in terms of where things are now, but also where we might go next. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Neither Snow Nor Rain by Devin Leonard. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.